Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Historically, the line between political allegiance and religious belief has often been blurred, as sometimes it's been entirely non-existent. But the decline of organised religion in most Western democracies over the past 100 years or so has led many of us to think of politics as a secular sphere in which competing ideologies and interests contest for control over the levers of government and the economy. However, is it the case that some of the ways of thinking that we associate with religious faith are making a comeback in politics? That is the argument which is made by journalist and writer Helen Lewis in a new BBC audio documentary, The Church of Social Justice. Helen, who's a staff writer with The Atlantic and the author of Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights, joins me now. Hi, Helen. Hello. The documentary, as I say, is called The Church of Social Justice. As that title indicates, you do make a couple of fleeting references to the right wing of politics, but it primarily focuses on the modern progressive left. And also, we should say, the religion is primarily Christianity. It is. um, uh, There is a a rabbi in there too. But yeah, it certainly um, applies more to the Abrahamic faiths, I would say, than to um, global religion. So it's very much situated in my position as uh, you know, somebody from from London and from previously from Worcester, yeah. I mean, this is an idea that I've I've come across increasingly over the last few years. So the documentary is very timely. Is it seen by its subjects, in other words, the the progressive, the contemporary progressive left, that this comparison is seen as pejorative or maybe even insulting? That's one of the things I was really interested to explore because I think it is. I think what I'm interested in talking about is a group of people, particularly who reject religion, who think it's all woo-woo and mumbo-jumbo, and therefore think that any comparisons with religion are by definition offensive. And that's not where I'm coming from at all. As um, I explained in the documentary, my dad is a deacon in the Catholic Church. and My mum was for many years a Eucharistic minister. She's in our, she was an RE teacher before she retired too. So I grew up going to Mass, you know, once or twice a week. Um, and although I am now an atheist... I still feel a kind of sense of connection to it. And, and I do think there are things I've lost as well as things I've, I've gained from that. So yeah, I think I wanted to come at it and say, okay, we're going to take this question that is often phrased as a dunk quite seriously and say, is it? it what ways is it? And is it just like it in the bad ways or is it like it in the good ways too? Because one of the things that struck me listening to it was I, I, I thought of uh, the historian Tom Holland, who's written a lot, um, particularly in his book Dominion, about, as he argues, I think pretty persuasively, actually, the fact that uh, a lot of ideas which we think of as post-religious, things like, you know, humanism or liberalism or socialism, that they're actually still deeply rooted in the Christian tradition and Christian ideas. I think there's a lot to that. I haven't read um, Dominion, but I think Tom Holland's work is usually um, brilliant. And I also think that uh, I was reading Julian Barnes's latest novel, Elizabeth Finch, which is about Julian the Apostate. And basically when 
uh, you know, pantheism died and monotheism became the kind of religion of Europe. And his argument in that is very explicitly that was, a, and that was a bad thing. Because what happened when, you know, Romans or Greeks encountered a, a new tribe was that they absorbed some of the local gods into their pantheon, essentially, that, you know, you kind of were, were much more at ease with the idea that traditions mixed and were kind of multicultural in that sense. But then you move to having a, you know, a single god, and it's like my god, or you're, you know, you're on the outside, you're, you know, you're, uh, you're an infidel. And, and in Barnes sees that as being a kind of pivotal moment in the history of, of Europe. And I think it's, a, I think it's a, a contention that's worth considering. There's also the fact that, you know, other writers, um, I was just reading Louise Perry, who's a brilliant young feminist writer, talking about the fact that monogamy and chastity, you know, those are things that feminists talk about a lot, but they're also things that arise from from Christianity as well, right? The idea that the holiest state of being is chastity is something that um, has, has really come to us through Christianity. I mean, there were Vestal Virgins in uh, Roman times, obviously, but the idea of kind of monks and nuns and that being, you know, something that was a special religious calling uh, and also the idea of a lifelong monogamous marriage is something that is indivisible from, you know, you can't talk about it without talking about the Christian tradition in Europe. Alongside, I suppose, more more positive things, for example, the, the Christian idea, which really wasn't wasn't around, before, you know, in the in the, in the Roman world, that that every human life has a value, that the the poorest and the weakest among us have the same value as the as the richest and the strongest, and there is such a thing as the dignity of human life because it's in the image of God. That's the positive side of it, isn't it? I think that's the the best thing that I can think of when I think about the Catholic tradition. Um, you know, I think about the fact there's that nun who has, you know, been spent the last 30 years visiting people on death row in America. You know, the people that America has decided are the worst people in America. And part of her Christian mission is saying that, you know, that they deserve human rights as well. They deserve connection and bonds. And I think that's the bit I would quite like to say is that you're not better than other people because you're smarter or you've got a higher paying job or you're you know, whatever it is, you've got more status in the world. Everybody has worth and you should see that worth regardless of the kind of trappings that they have outside them. And in a way, your parents act as the representative of of that way of thinking within the documentary and it, and it ends on that, on, on that positive note. But along the way, there's the other sort of religion, isn't it? And, you know, we're closer to it in Ireland than you are in the UK. Religious faith has been declining over a longer time period in the UK. It's happened much more precipitously, the decline of organised religion, Catholicism in particular, here in Ireland. But there is the kind of, there's the bad stuff, isn't there? There's the, you know, nominating people as heretics or apostates, casting them out, um, being incredibly precise about what is or isn't allowed to be said, all that sort of stuff. And you look at those parallels too. I do. And I think those are really important to consider. One of them, I think, is the idea of a kind of priestly class who can't be questioned. Um, you know, I think one of the great things about rationalism and the Enlightenment was the idea that you had to supply evidence for your position. You couldn't argue from authority. And quite a lot of when people revolt against religion, it is a revolt against authority and the idea that somebody can simply declare that this is the way things are. They declare that there are good people and bad people and they're the one who gets to decide. Um, you know, and I felt like when I came over to uh, Ireland to cover the um, abortion referendum, was I was uh, people were talking all the time about would it be like the EU referendum? You know, would this be a kind of revolt against the political elites? And I think it was complicated in the Irish situation by the fact that in some respects the authority that people were kicking against was the Catholic Church rather than a political class there. So I think you have to be really sensitive to the country that you're in. And I would say, yeah, that I I don't think, it, like, the, whether or not 
Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are from a particular religious community has not really featured at all in the Tory leadership race. Um, it has now become, it has receded from public life in a way in Britain. And I just, I'm not sure it has done in America or indeed in Ireland. Yeah, I think it's it's certainly a lot less important than it would have been 30, 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, this idea of, I don't know if it's a if it's a good phrase or not, but it crops up from some time to time, the God-shaped hole in, in human life, that, that the departure of religion from most people's lives and from politics, as you say, has left people flailing around looking to fill some of the bits that, that are left behind there and God knows what they'll, you know, what they'll come across, uh, to coin a phrase. Um, and there is, I suppose, a broader trend in society, isn't there, of what's called sort of woo-woo philosophies of one sort or another, from crystals to angels to homeopathy. Um, far fewer people now describe themselves as being a members of an organised religion, but a lot of them still describe themselves as spiritual and that can mean all different kinds of stuff. Well, that's what really got me started on this journey, actually, was when I was doing the publicity for Difficult Women, which is my history of feminism, Elizabeth Oldfield, who was then at the Theos, which is a Christian think tank, said, I hope you don't find this offensive, but do you think that feminism took the place of religion in your life? And I found that really interesting because I was like, well, why would you, why would you assume that I would find that offensive? Why is that? And some people deem that to be an offensive question. And I think it's because she assumed that somebody who was no longer religious would see, you know, would have a negative, an inherently negative view of religion. And I probably did 20 years ago, you know, when new atheism was all the rage, I was much more burning with kind of zeal about all of the, um, you know, the bad things that flow from religion. But I think I've ended up at a more integrated place where I can see that people do have a, a, a yearning for meaning in their lives, um, you know, for something bigger than just going out to work and coming home. They want there to be some kind of sense of the transcendent and, you know, the divine. And, and I, don't, I don't deprecate that in the way that I think I, I once would have done. But you're absolutely right about these new religions. Um, there's a book by David Zahl, Seculosity, which kind of talks about everything from, you know, I guess you could say kind of, was Peloton, did Peloton have religious overtones? You know, it was like you went to your church and got on your exercise bike and everybody, it was like a revivalist meeting, you know, in in terms of the energy of it. Um, And, you know, something like uh, crypto, cryptocurrency, I think, you know, it's a belief-based currency um, in which people sort of hype each other up, again, in a way that feels quite kind of revivalist. There's um, there's a point in the book that I'm not sure that I've, I I fully agree with. Uh, you quote um, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg uh, Lukanoff's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is an excellent book, I think, about contemporary society. And they talk about something which they call collective effervescence, which is, I suppose, the joy of people coming together in a shared belief and shouting and, you know, achieving a kind of exaltation, which does seem and sound quite religious. But, but reading that, I thought, you know, that never really went away. And that that isn't something new now. I mean, campus protests in the 60s were like that. Football matches are like that. Rock festivals are like that. I mean, God knows Lenny Riefenstahl filmed a version of that in Triumph of the Will. So there's that's more like a, just a core human necessity, which can be manipulated in all kinds of ways, some good and some bad. Yeah, I know. I do. I do, um, I do agree with that. I think I guess what I felt they were trying to get to, and this is what why I mean I've specifically kind of addressed this to a, a left that is much more likely to be um, atheist, is the idea that you, you know, the humans can kind of get past that. You know, there was a slightly cringe phase to new atheism, which did some really brilliant work, and there was, I, you know, I, I I really appreciated reading it at the time. Of you know, remember there when there was a movement where people atheists were going to call themselves brights. The idea that they were kind of like they were more evolved than other people because they'd moved past all this sort of superstition. And I think that's the bit where, 
I think many of us have kind of come to the realization that you don't move past these very fundamental human impulses. You know, you, you, they express themselves in different ways. And it was very obvious to me that, you know, John McWhorter, who is the kind of great woke basher of the, uh, of the American journalistic system, he said that he feels that way when he goes to watch musical theater. You know, he just loves going to Broadway and he watches them all doing the tap dancing and doing the singing and everybody's there. And there's, I think there's research which, I always feel a slight question mark over this research because it being psychological research about people's heartbeats synchronising when they're in, a, in an audience, when they're watching the show. And whether or not that's literally true, I think there is certainly a feeling that you, as Elizabeth Oldfield puts it in the documentary, you unself, that you kind of lose your self-consciousness and you become aware of yourself, that you're all facing your attention in the same way. And that is a particular experience that I do think we all crave from time to time. Well, I mean, I'll see that in things like, you know, um, pride parades in Dublin and, and those kind of, and many other, many other kinds of activities too. I'm not sure whether they're, um, anything to be concerned about, but from what you're saying, you don't necessarily think there's something to be concerned about because in, in the coddling of the American mind, there's a sense of, you know, the kind of <laughs> the children of this crazy new philosophy are taking over the, the, the campuses. That seems a little overstated to me. I don't think they're inherently bad. Like you say, I think the phenomenon itself is neutral and it can express itself to ends which are good or bad. There's a theory um, which Malcolm Gladwell wrote about, about school shootings, where he links them to riots. Uh, And he talks about the fact that in a riot, you know, there are some people who are hardened troublemakers who turn up absolutely intent on causing a ruck. And there are other people who get swept up in the moment. And that, you know, it's it's essentially a level of thresholds for violence. And I sort of think there is a kind of, threshold instant in in lots of types of crowd right um terry pratchett once wrote that the iq of a mob was you know that of its least intelligent member divided by the number of people in the crowd there is a a kind of thing that you know like people will only things they would never do if they were on their own they will do when they feel part of of a crowd and that is it's not necessarily bad but it is it is i mean it's very easy to see the potential danger of that yeah well some of the examples you give are are in the United States. Like the, there's, there's one very telling one, I think, which I'd, I'd heard before, which is the protests uh, against Dave Chappelle um, after his, his his Netflix documentary um, by by trans rights activists. And the language and the way of speaking and everything is like a Bible revi- revivalist meeting. It's, it was fast. So yeah, this one guy goes to the counter protest with a sign that says, I like Dave. And he does all these sorts of slightly self-aware chants, which are like, I'm just here to say that jokes are funny. And, and, and uh, you know, someone screams in his face with added expletives, repent, repent, repent. Um, and it, that was kind of fascinating to me, the idea that that, she, that that person obviously felt that they could see beyond the the sign, which was very bland, and what the guy was saying, which was very bland, and they could sort of see, peer into his soul and see that he was in need of saving. And that did strike me as being very obviously religious. And when that drew me to to one of my favourite conclusions when I'm doing this podcast, which is that it's all the fault of the Americans. Um, <laughs> that it's, their, it's their sick, rotten culture which is infecting uh, the rest of us at the moment. And I, I, I have this sort of theory about America, which is that it, it, all its energy comes from this sort of weird paradox at the core of it between, on the one hand, this hyper-elevation of individualism uh, and the individual story above all else. And on the other hand, this incredible sort of conformity enforced by communities. And America's sort of trapped always between Plymouth Rock and Las Vegas, you know? And I think you see that in 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 the way that these things play out, don't you? 
That's so funny. I was saying something almost identical to my American boss because um, I've been um, getting ready to go and report in Florida. And you're right, the way that I phrased it was the kind of distinction between the sort of uh, descendants of the pilgrims, so as you say, Plymouth Rock, uh, you know, the kind of Massachusetts vegans who are, you know, incredibly, like they, they have a sort of a deep innate suspicion of joy because it's probably sinful. And then the other hand, the ultra libertarians, you know, the people who live in Florida and have a big boat and don't want to be told that they can't drive a gas guzzling car, you know, like you can't like the kind of you can't tell me what to do tendency. Um, and that is the kind of fundamental contradiction of, of, of America, I think, in terms of two just completely mismatched styles of, uh, of person jammed together in this country. And you end up with, I mean, I, I think I heard you somewhere um, um, talking about this. You end up with modern movements of the left as somebody who, who comes from the left yourself, which place a much greater emphasis on individual self-actualization and agency than, than the left traditionally did, which was kind of rooted ultimately in things like collective bargaining and trade unions and the idea of, of you know, solidarity, I suppose. I mean, that hasn't necessarily been thrown out, but this rather American import seems to have joined it in the movement. I do think there is a great individualism to American culture, which is more different from Europe than we would think, given that, uh, as you say, you know, lot, we import lots of American ideas. We share the English language internet. Well, I say we share, but it's, it's their internet, right? We're just, we're just on it um, in, in the shadow of kind of all the big tech companies in Silicon Valley. Um, so I do think that is a, a huge part of it, yeah. I'm talking to Helen Lewis, the maker of uh, The Church of Social Progress, which is a BBC documentary that you can get, I think, on BBC Sounds and on the BBC website. We'll be back straight after this. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. And welcome back. Helen Lewis is still with me. Helen, you don't really touch on this in the documentary, but there is a kind of a theology as well, you might say, underpinning... Um, some of these social social progress movements and ideas. Uh, it's sort of developed over the past three decades, I suppose, in, in universities, and it takes certain ideas of social progress and individual liberation, and it kind of jams them together with a postmodern understanding from a bunch of French philosophers, really, of how meaning operates and how meaning is constructed. It's quite highfalutin, some of it, and I'm not sure that people are necessarily thinking of it when they're bringing their placard down the street, but I think it is important. It's a mode of thinking which tends to downplay or even to reject kind of enlightenment ideas, I suppose, like the scientific method or empirical facts and subordinates them to beliefs or to another way of thinking. And in a way, that's almost kind of religious or ends up in a religious place, doesn't it? Yeah, without getting too much into sort of our um, our Foucault and others, I do think there is a, a way of speaking that kind of implies that some of the enlightenment ideals or some of the ideals of liberalism, I guess we'd say, have been manipulated to bad ends. That is definitely a strain in contemporary thought. So, for example, the idea that free speech, you know, free speech is a good, um, is now being more and more challenged by the idea that, hang on a minute, who's free speech, you know, and does the free speech of one group sometimes silence another group? 
And those, I think, are really necessary challenges. You know, I used to write a lot about online abuse in the early days of um, social media. And there was this sort of idea like, you know, just let a thousand flowers bloom. But the fact is that, you know, if Alex Jones goes on Infowars and says repeatedly over and over again that the Sandy Hook school shooting was a hoax, that means that, that you know, it's, 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 it is actually more than opinion. Those parents were harassed and sent threats, as well as the kind of emotional injury of having your child's death being you know, told it, it didn't happen. So there are definitely costs to free speech that we have to acknowledge. And also it's always much easier for people in power to speak freely than it is for, for people who don't have power. So I do think that that has been a necessary challenge to liberalism. The other thing that's kind of interesting is there's a loss of faith in democracy, which is the other kind of great liberal shibboleth. You know, if you look at the polling, particularly of younger people, they're just sort of feeling kind of like a sense of ennui about it. Um, and I certainly think if you look at America at the moment, there is a, a, a you know, what would you say, 20, 25% of America that ha- that actually kind of would like Trump just to be supreme leader. They would kind of quite like a dictator. They think if the price of that is democracy being over, that's one that they're willing to pay. And that does feel quite, um, yeah, I mean, I, that does feel like a cult of personality to me. Um, I guess more like a cult than a religion. So if you have increasingly larger groups of people, both on the left end of the spectrum and the right end of the spectrum, who are not particularly taken with the ideas of the rational enlightenment, which led to the liberal democracy, which we know. Um, That's reminiscent of problems that democracies have faced in the past, in the first half of the 20th century, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we have to be very careful about these comparisons because people find them very um, overwrought. But I think it is fair to say in America, if not in Britain, that there is a huge disenchantment with um, democracy and also rising political violence. Um, you know, there have been obviously instances of political violence in the history of Britain and Ireland, but currently, you know, the fact that the, the judge who did, wants the warrant into the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, you know, is, is probably in hiding right now. You know, election officials who are just doing their job are, you know, are facing death threats. That is a climate of fear which is a, a very bad sign. And I, whilst I don't want to kind of get over the top and, and, and sort of luxuriate in, in how terrifying that is, I also don't think we should underplay it either. Um, you know, I think one of the lessons for me in the last 20 years, really, of being an adult is that, um, you know, things that I, well, when I was 18... Oh, absolutely taken for granted. You know, people were writing articles in the 2000s about how, like, politics was too boring. And in fact, wasn't that a good thing? Everyone was very happy. <laughs> like, um, you know, that that has been unwound, I would say, in in the Anglosphere, at least in, in the last couple of years. And, uh, I mean, a part of this has to be something which we haven't mentioned so far, which is changes in information technology. The Gutenberg moment, which as some people describe it, the invention of the internet and then of social media and then of mobile devices being having as profound a change on the way ideas are transmitted and groups form as happened after the invention of the printing press 600 or so years ago. I kind of think that's true. And if it is true, we're probably just in the early stages of it. But I do think it does have a profound effect on what we're talking about here today. I think it has an enormous effect. Um, and I don't think those comparisons are o- overdone at all. Because, um, you know, the spread of Protestantism through Europe is innately bound up with the idea of new technology. You know, the fact that you can bring the Bible in English, that, you know, poor people can now read and access the scriptures for themselves, is a, is a hugely challenging moment to the authority of the, the Catholic Church. 
And something similar is happening today, which is the early utopian version of the internet was that it would turn everybody into a brain in a jar, right? That actually it would free us from these shackles of personality and, uh, and preconceptions. And mysteriously, the exact opposite has happened. You know, people have instead, because we're communicating so much through text and as online avatars, felt the urge to slap a load of labels on themselves to situate who they are and where they come from. Um, and I do think that has fundamentally changed how we associate with each other, as has the fact that you can now organise communities by interest rather than by geography. Um, Steve Bannon, the election strategist in the US, has this anecdote that he tells about, you know, a guy who's not really much cop in everyday life. He does an office job he doesn't really like. No one really knows him there. But at night he goes home and plays this online role-playing game where he's Ajax, the great commander. You know, and if that guy dies, it barely causes a ripple among his co-workers who go, you know, I wonder what happened to him. But online there's kind of mourning and, you know, huge tributes are paid and his virtual avatar is sent off in a burning boat into the sea. And the question then becomes, well, hang on a minute, which of those lives is is the real life? And I think that has huge implications for belief systems because it allows people to find a lot of people who believe the same kooky thing as them they would never have been able to find in their village or town or even city that that easily. Um, and then the obvious obverse of that is the fact that if you go to any kind of religious institution, they're much more likely to be diverse, I would say, than you than a lot of other spaces. Um, which are kind of self-segregated by income or class or whatever. You know, if I go to a, one of the churches here in Lewisham, it's going to have a much more um, lively racial mix to it than, you know, the cafe that I go to, for example. So when you go to a religious building, you are being pushed together with some people who are not like you. You know, maybe they don't have the same educational level as you. Maybe they don't have the same political beliefs as you. You're just all there because you're the people who live in that area. And yes, you have faith in common, but you might not actually have a whole suite of political opinions that follow from that. Whereas online, you can self-sort yourself much more effectively into only ever associating with not just people who agree with you, but people who are like you. You know, they have the same outlook in life. They have the same, you know, interests in education as you. I mean, there's a sense, I mean, I think that I think that's all very true. And and, and there's a sense, isn't it, that as, as we move from less physical interaction with with people, with people, diverse people in the real world and and retreat online, which is what seems to be happening and probably even more with remote working and things like that over the over, over the last couple of years, that churches actually uh, become one of the few places that, that counteract that sort of bowling alone kind of phenomenon um, and this sort of sorting, which the internet is certainly the internet that we have now based out of Silicon Valley is entirely based on because the business model is putting you with people who reinforce your views, isn't it? Oh, and and you want you to spend as much time on their services as possible, you know? The ideal for Facebook is somebody who spends 24 hours a day on Facebook and therefore views a lot of advertising that is key to Facebook's business model. It generates a lot of content which has engagement. Um, so, you know, you have to be realistic about the kind of incentives that are operating here. Um, yeah, and I do, I think Bowling Alone was something I thought about a lot when I was making this documentary, actually, the idea that there are kind of institutions in society, you know, are the people in, who follow you on Twitter going to come round if you break your leg? You know, that's one of the things I, I felt quite strongly. My parents have always been involved in parish work in the sense of, you know, um, hostel suppers, as they were called then, you know, feeding homeless people, for example, visiting the sick and the housebound. And, you know, I was dragged along to kind of old folks' homes when I was 12 or 13, which is about the last thing I wanted to do at the time, to go and take the, uh, communion to people. Um, you know, and that was often the only visitor they saw all week if their family lived 
a long time away. And people on the internet are not going to do that for you when you're 85 and in a, in a home. And therefore, we kind of have to think about how we want to recreate those institutions for for now, if, if the church is no longer going to fulfil that function. Uh, do you think that it's a bad idea for people to do, as I see them do increasingly on their social media avatars, they've essentially got a, a series of creeds which they ascribe to, whether it be flags of Ukraine or Palestine or whatever it might be, whether it be a symbol that means alliance with a certain social movement. I mean, that seems incredibly limiting to me as a human being, that that's the first, that's your first encounter with the outside world is with those badges on you. But it seems to be creeping more and more into in, into the social media world that you have to self-identify with your tribe. Yeah, I was thinking about this, like in real life, the first thing you encounter about someone is not their strongest opinion. And life would not be better if you, you know, you walked into the cafe and just went, hello, everyone, by the way, Vladimir Putin's a war criminal. You know, they might all agree with you, but it's it's a very fundamentally artificial way of interacting with people. Um, and we probably, yeah, I, I mean, I think about it in my journalism. I don't know how you feel about this. I think I, actually I wish I could be more abstracted from it. It's probably not that helpful to people to know so much about me because they will just make up the opinion, you know, of, of what I've done before I get there. But I, you know, I also think it's too late. I've already done it. It's too late. But you know what I mean? When the great documentarians, I was thinking about, you know, someone like a Louis Theroux or John Monson, you're actually not that clear on where they are politically. Um, you know, you I wouldn't be, uh, you know, in his love who and it's private eye, I wouldn't be sure entirely how he votes every time. You know, and they're not partisans in that way. Um, and I think being a partisan is often quite limiting because as much as it gets you claps from your own tribe, it does mean that other people instantly are prejudiced against anything that you have to say. Yeah, I was talking just a, just a couple of months ago to John about his about his last series, and he, which, which was about culture wars and when when they came from in the end. And and he had he had a lot of interesting things to say about that, including about the. Um, the trans issue, which for for some reason, and I'm not entirely sure why this is, seems to be the most the kind of the bleeding edge, the front line, the uh, the no man's land um, of of these issues, far more than than any of the other ones. Maybe race is, is as significant or more significant in the United States. I'm not sure, but it certainly seems to be the case in the UK that that it is far more fraught, and increasingly so, I would say, here in Ireland too. Uh, why why is that? Do you think? A million dollar question. Um, I mean, I can only give you my insight into it, but I think there is a lot of confusion about what the claims being made actually are. So you will hear some people say, we're not claiming that biological sex doesn't exist. That's an outrageous thing to say. And other people saying, no, no, there is no such thing as biological sex. It's, It's a completely made up concept, which again is down to the internet. Right. There is no there is no pope of trans issues who says this is what we we all believe now. This is the doctrine. So you can find people who are completely unaware of quite mainstream things that other people are being argued. And they say, well, that would be ridiculous if you argued that. And you kind of go, OK, but nonetheless, some some people are actually. So we have to kind of deal with that and, and rebut it. So I think that is a big problem with it. And then I think there is a religious overtone to it, which I do think it is concerned with ideas of, of the soul and the idea that what's inside you is more important than your physical presentation. And lots of people just have difficulty fundamentally accepting that, um, that, that you, you are kind of your own creation, you can sort of say what you are. The other thing that makes it very difficult is you're talking about two groups who have both got a very good claim to oppression, right? We know that 
transgender people, uh, you know, are, are, are harassed in the street. You know, they've often been objects of derision by comedians, by, you know, tabloid newspapers. All of that is true. At the same time, there are women who genuinely do have, for very good reasons, a big fear of being alone in intimate spaces with people they perceive as, as male. You know, if you have been through a rape by someone you perceive as a man, you are going to feel a particular way for some time about levels of threat. Um, and I think it can be quite hard for, for men perhaps to understand that. They think that's that's women being kind of overwrought, but it's a case of, I think, different life experiences having brought you to different places. So again, to come back to that idea, we were talking about these, you know, ideas, sort of Marxist ideas of, of power. There's no obvious victim and oppressor there, right? That's two two sets of victims, essentially, in the kind of, you know, um, very basic way of looking at things that we have. And it's the reason I would say that... Um, Israel-Palestine is a similarly inflammatory issue, is that you have got two groups who have both got very good claims to have been historically oppressed. And there's no obvious up-down about who is, is in the final analysis, is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. Uh, it's, it's actually fluid depending on the situation. And so those, are the, those are, I think, are the um, you know, situations that are hardest to resolve because you have to be very nuanced about them and you can't really do that on the internet. Yeah, there's, there's two things that strike me about me, and we're certainly not going to we have seven more podcasts on the arguments over over trans rights and trans issues, so we're not going to do that here today. I mean, one is that, um, just to come back to the, the, the religious theme, there's a big building just up the road from me here where people go every day and they consume what they believe is the real body and blood of, of a man who died 2,000 years ago who was also God. Um, I don't believe any of that, but I have no problem with them believing that, and they go and they do that. However... A generation or so ago, uh, those people and people like them actually, you know, intervened in the lives of people like me um, in a way that I would, that was unacceptable then and I would find it unacceptable now. So it's the question of, of when a clash emerges. Now, some people might find that comparison offensive because they, they say that trans people's sense of identity is their own uh, core human right, the right to be who they are. That's not the same. But I think that that there is, I think you're right, there is a religion, there is a faith or a belief versus versus science element there. But the other bit that strikes me is that just um, the trans issue is a civil war, that the um, second wave feminists were generally on the same side as many of the people who identify as, as, as trans allies. They occupy the same spaces in knowledge industries like universities and media companies in a way that you don't get about most of the other issues about race or reproductive rights or any of those. So in this world of social media that we live in, they rub up against each other all the time. Yeah, I think that's a very good analysis. And I hope that it's fundamentally where we get to, which is the idea that you can't discriminate against people or mock them or, you know, you shouldn't, that you shouldn't treat people differently because they're transgender what you can't ask people to do, you know, what's that phrase? You know, you can't make windows into men's souls. You can't fundamentally ask people to have a belief that they don't hold. You can you can police the expressions of that belief, but you can't, you, you know, we, we cannot have a state-imposed belief that everybody must hold or on pain of being booted out of polite society. Uh, and I think that is, you're right, that is part of the, you need, we need a kind of version of secularism, essentially, for feminism, um, where the idea that there is a kind of, middle ground where you can have a range of different beliefs uh, and as long as you are being respectful and tolerant, you can hold any one of those different beliefs. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes of secularism in Ireland, which is that it's anti-religious. It allows the rights of religious people alongside the rights of people of of, of all other beliefs as well, is, is the theory. Just one last question, if you wouldn't mind, because when I look at this subject, sometimes it strikes me, there's a diff- strikes me that there's a different way of looking at it, which is... Um, people always look in horror at the appalling beliefs of younger uh, younger people and think that they're going to totally mess up the world and wreck it in a whole new way. And there is an intergenerational aspect to this. Um, and, you know, there have been various social changes alongside the things like the internet, which we talked about. There's a much uh, much higher proportion of, of young people have gone or are going to university. And then when they come out of university, they face a very different world from their predecessors in terms of things like precarity of work, having nowhere to live, uh, uh, collapsing climate. And in many ways, some of these things seem to me to be not necessarily about the thing they're supposed to be about. They're about a proxy for for that kind of inter- intergenerational conflict or resentment or whatever you might want to characterise it. Yeah, I do think you have to be very careful when writing about uh, all of these related issues not to fall into a sort of like, we're going to hell in a handcart uh, kind of kind of vibe. Because the values that I grew up with, you know, I was um, a teenager during the 90s when it was the kind of high era of the, the Ledettes, right? And the kind of female chauvinist pigs. And no, 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 I, I want to be on the cover of a men's magazine. I actually find taking my clothes off incredibly empowering. Um, you know, that wasn't a particular, you know, that was that was the value system that I was brought up with. And it's actually one that has now really receded quite a lot. There are bits of youth culture that I think are kind of fascinating, like the fact that young people under 25 are so much less likely to drink than previous generations. You know, in some ways, the story of that generation is of a very conscientious, anxious generation. They're not all kind of, you know, hippie hedonists. Um, it's a very different story. And it's a particular one. Um, and I don't think, you know, I don't think they're wrong. I think they're the products of their circumstances in the same way that I was. Um, but I do think you have to look at it in the context of, yes, particularly university educated young people for whom that is, you know, still going to university has a huge effect on your lifetime earnings, but it is no longer a ticket to a particular kind of life that it was even 30 years ago of a stable income and a house and, a, you know, two cars in the, in the driveway. Things I do feel, do think feel very precarious for young people very, very much nowadays. And we should some look at some of these kind of outbreaks of some of their wilder, um, you know, excitements online as a kind of reaction against a world that is in some ways fundamentally rigged in favour of old people and rigged against them. I mean, I guess they hope that one day they'll become the old people and they'll benefit eventually from the rigging. But I do think for a lot of young people, it does feel like that. I, I agree completely, which is probably a good a good point at which to wrap things up. Helen, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you. That's it for today. The Church of Social Justice, as I said, is available on BBC Sounds and on the BBC website. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back very soon. You can mail us with your questions or your points or your opinions or whatever at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening.